welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name's Oscar. My name's David. And this week, holy hell, it's going to be a season recap. We've got lots for you. It's pretty much going to be the What Can Change in a Year podcast. We even have our very own playoff bracket. It's going to be all about nicknames because Jimmy Garoppolo nicknames are the only <laughs> playoffs you should care about. And, and yeah, and well, uh, really what I want to know is what your favorite nicknames are. Oh, Jimmy GQ, which is currently, I think, the, the early leader in the clubhouse here, uh, has the most overall votes of any of the nicknames. Um, I think that's it's simple, you know, makes sense, rolls off the tongue. I, I like it. I'm into it. I, I think definitely Optimus Dime is going to be my dark horse so far. I, I like it. I think it's, it's, it's one of those nicknames where you can put it in between things. You can also just call him Optimus Dime, like Jimmy Optimus Dime Garoppolo, or just Optimus Dime. And I think, you know, people are like, oh, you're never going to get a TV broadcast to say it. They said Megatron. If you yeah. can go with Megatron, you can go with Optimus Dime. Yeah, I mean, Optimus Dime is, is great. I do love it. Uh, it does make me laugh every time. What I really want to know is who the 177 people are that voted for the Rising Tide. Because that is literally the dumbest nickname. We're gonna we're kicking you off the island. You're no longer welcome here. Um, you need to find a new home. Officially uninvited. So this week's show is going to be all about looking back at the last year, how we've did, the things we forgot about, the fact that I don't know our number one corner used to be Richard Robinson. <laughs> you know things like that. Those are the kinds of things we're going to talk about. We're going to recap the game against the Rams. There's not a whole lot there. They sat their starters. We weren't going to get a lot from that game anyway. Then we're going to go into a quick rundown for the week's stories. And then we're going to go through some just notable tidbits from the year. We're going to review the season and compare some storylines. We're going to get into the very, uh, I guess this is like the, what, the sixth season of the Better Rivals Team Awards. This is our fifth God, year, right? This is, yeah, so... 2012 was our first season, um, which I came on like mid-season, basically, yeah. that year. So is that five or six? Five. I don't know. We'll call it five. I don't know. Sure. Something we'll like that. We'll call it five. I like round numbers. But this is going to be our, our fifth iteration of the team awards. And then we'll round out with some predictions. We'll find out who was more right, Oscar or David, when it comes right down to it. So let's get into the things we think in the game recap against the St. Louis Rams. There's not a whole hell of a lot to take away from this game. Big, the, only, the really only big takeaway that I had was that it wasn't that long ago where beating up a team of backups wasn't a gimme. Yeah, I mean, this was, you know, uh, during the week, because we, 49ers had six players that landed on the PFF team of the week and was something that I, you know, had retweeted and stuff. And then, you know, somebody came back with basically like, hey, it was the Rams backups, okay? We shouldn't be that impressed. And it's like, Hey, like, yeah, I get your point for sure, but let's not forget that not very long ago, this was a very terrible team and like playing against backups and winning, let alone dominating the fashion they did, um, would have been kind of unthinkable and, and wouldn't have definitely been the expectation, right? In um, case you forgot, last year, the 49ers lost to the fighting Drew Stantons. They lost to the Matt Barkley led Bears 26 to 6. Like that one wasn't even all that close. The last and the last time that they beat a back and this isn't even just a team of backups. This is backup quarterbacks. <laughs> right? The last time that they beat a backup quarterback was when they beat Ryan Lindley and the Cardinals when the Cardinals needed to try and get the number one seed. And it was Jim Harbaugh's last game. It was his au revoir game. And, and that was the last time. And now it's like, oh, team of backups. And everybody, gonna- everybody was real upset back in the days when everybody was real upset about eight and eight. Yeah. 
and and now we're curb stomping, you know, playoff teams that are playing their backups. So like, look, um, let's just let's take it for what it's worth. Yes, it doesn't tell you a whole hell of a lot, but let's not pretend like it was a gimme. Right. I think that I mean that in and of itself, you know, we talk about um a lot over the years and, and more more so I think in the Harbaugh years when we were winning a little bit more, but uh you know, the hallmark of really good teams isn't necessarily winning close games, right? Or or even winning, you know, the the tight games against other good competition. It's it's really dominating opponents that you should dominate, right? The good teams don't come out and let teams below them hang around in in games that they shouldn't. You just said um, teams blow them. <laughs> uh, Everybody drink. If you've got a drink in your hand, just drink. Uh, and, and I do, so I'm going to drink. And, and look, the Niners, you know, aren't there yet. We had a, a hell of a stretch to close the season. Um, and, you know, we're, we're very impressive in a lot of aspects. But the fact that we're able to come in against a team that, you know, uh, when you're looking at playing all their backups, right, you're, you're thinking, okay, they're kind of a team at the bottom of the barrel uh, with, with the players that they have on the field currently. And to come out and handle business and, and close the season with a win, I think was, uh, you know, says a lot about how far they've come over the course of the season. Even Lake and Tomlinson posterized the Rams. Yeah. Lakin Tomlinson. What made yeah. one of those PFF graphics at the end of the week that was like highest rated guards. Lakin Tomlinson. You have to know something is wrong when Lakin Tomlinson <laughs> is making the top five rated PFF guards. You have to know something. The, is wrong. Yeah, the entire left side. So Kilgore, Tomlinson, Staley all made were uh, on the team of the week this week. Um, and yeah, I think it tells you Man, how nice it is to play the Rams for one when Aaron Donald's not in the lineup. Exactly. Holy shit. Exactly. So not too much to take away from the game. That's going to pretty much be the end of the recap. It's like, hey, you, you did what you had to do, and it was good. And we closed yeah. the season out with uh, five wins in a row. We won six of seven. Six of the last seven. That's exactly right. And a lot of people in Vegas were biting their nails, trying to figure out whether or not they were going to hit that under or whether, never, or whether they were going to hit the over. And some people made some money, some people lost some money. I guess it all depends on where you made your bets, if you are indeed the betting kind. But let's get to the rundown. Let's get to some of the interweek stories that we think are important or some of the tidbits that we want to highlight over the course of the week. Number one, spotlight player for the game. Even though we didn't have a huge recap, I think it is important to highlight that Eric Reed had one hell of a game. His 96.6 overall game grade was the single highest grade by a 49ers player this season. Joe Staley's 95.5 from this very game was next. He was ridiculous in coverage. He was targeted eight times, allowed just 21 yards on six receptions, one pass breakup, and three stops in perhaps his final, his final game as a 49er. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, I think one thing, and just to add a little bit more context to the overall grade, right? So obviously we know, I, I would hope at this point in the season, zero to 100 scale, but a 96, you know, nearly 97 overall grade is a is a pretty rare thing. You look at over the course of the entire season, there's basically there's a little over uh, 19,000 individual game grades given out, right? In every game, only 20, what was it? 23 of those had a 95 or higher. So it, it's not a common thing. You know, this was one of the better games uh, that we saw from any player at any position um, for the entire season. Now, you, I think, obviously, again, you talk about quality of competition and playing against a lot of the backups and all that stuff, and and that probably, uh, you know, drops it down a little bit when you start adding some of those extra layers in there. But it was a very impressive performance from him. And, and yeah, I think the question now is, is, is that the final game? Obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time in the coming weeks talking about 
uh, where we see this roster going and everything that's going to happen over the course of the offseason. But if it is the final game, uh, it was one hell of a game for him to go out on. For those of you who couldn't carry the one and multiply by 100 and do all the things you have to do to make you know numbers percents, that's 0.12% of grades are 95 or above if you're taking the 19,000 individual game grades given out over the course of the year and 23 of which are 95 or above. Yeah, it is a very small percentage. There were only two other safety grades. Um, Harrison Smith had one and Buda Baker had one uh, that were just a little bit above that. But yeah, I mean, it was it was up there with the best performances we've seen this entire season. It's going to be really upsetting when Eric Reed is the starting safety for the Seahawks next year. Uh, it, it's funny too, because people are already ready. Like, should we resign him just to keep him from going to the Seahawks? And it's no. like, no, that's not why you make a decision. But yeah, I get that. It's going to sting a little bit if, uh, if that's where he ends up and it's, it's like, going to be, it's, it's going to be extra hilarious when we sign Jimmy Graham to a free agent tight end contract oh my God. and it's going to be the battle on the other side and Jimmy Graham will still lose that battle because <laughs> uh, Jimmy Graham is soft and somebody ate his soul at some point, uh, AKA. Camp Chancellor. I hope we wouldn't sign him. No, I hope we don't sign him either. For the, I, I literally, the, the number one mention in my timeline over the course of the last two days was, especially because I, I tweeted out that, that tight end video that Jordan sent us. Oh, yeah, Goddard. Yeah, and, and the number one mention was, hey, do you think we'll, sh- we'll sign Jimmy Graham? I don't. One, I don't know. Two, I hope not, is really all I have to say about that. Please no. Next story in the rundown is that two players made the pro football focus all pro second team, not the first team, but the second team. Joe Staley is one of the second team pro football focus all pro team members. He really did play some of the best football of his career close to the end of the season. And of course, again, we say Jimmy, Jimmy G, he, he, he's a, a tie that lifts all boats. And he indeed lifted Joe Staley as well. His final five games, he had an 83 overall grader higher, which ranked him in the top five among tackles every week including a first ranking twice. He finished the year, I think, second overall in their, in their grading which is yeah. on, on the heels of his performance at the end of the year, which is really impressive. He allowed just three total pressures and zero sacks in his final five games with Jimmy Garoppolo, giving him the second best pass blocking efficiency during that stretch. I mean, it's one of those things where your quarterback can't elevate your offensive line play. And when you've already got a pretty good left tackle, all of a sudden you take that pretty good left tackle and you make him really good. It's kind of funny because we saw, you know, I, I, I remember talking kind of after the, about the first month of the season, right? Kind of that early October time frame with Joe Staley. And it's like, man, he hasn't really been playing all that well, you know, and, and you're, you're really starting to wonder, okay, how, how much time do we have left of Joe Staley playing like the Joe Staley that we know? And then just the complete 180 that he did, you know, in the latter half of the season, especially those last five games. And it was, you know, obviously the pass protection was impressive. You mentioned the three pressures allowed. He ended the season as the number one graded run blocker among tackles. He was back to, I mean, that was the Joe Staley, right? Peak Harbaugh years there when he was really playing at his, his best. He was just a dominant force as a run blocker. And then he was just, you know, really good as a pass protector. That wasn't necessarily his best facet, but, um, and that's kind of what he got back to there is he was just mauling dudes in the run game uh, over these last few weeks. And, and it was, it's just kind of hilarious to see like the difference in, mo- we've joked about it a couple of times now, but the difference in motivation, I think is. Well, I was going to uh, say the there. same thing is we, we, we don't like to play football psychologists on this podcast yeah. as, as much as we possibly can. We avoid that like the plague. And yet the one thing that I come back to is Joe Staley's like, Hey, it's fun. 
it's fun to play football again. And we've all been there where, you know, for a lot of these players, yes, they do get to play a game, but it is very much a job. And when you go to job, when you go to work and you're just like, God, I fucking hate being here. I don't want to be here. I don't like it here. You just, you, you drag ass through the day. All yeah. of a sudden, if you work at a fantastic company and you love your job and you love the people you work with and it's fun to go to work, you're probably going to perform a little better with no skill set change whatsoever. And, and that's, I think, what you're seeing with Joe Staley. Yeah, and it was great. I mean, obviously, we hope that I, that changes, you know, if we can get even even if it's just one more year of Joe Staley playing at a really high level, that helps, you know, your team and, and where you need to, to worry about plugging holes and stuff. Because, again, early in the year, you're, you're like, okay, Trent Brown's kind of coming on a little bit. You know, we feel feel better about him. But man, should we start thinking about addressing that tackle spot Maybe and, and finding Connor a replacement? Williams. Right, uh, early on, and if if you can kind of punt that decision even one more year and, and put that off, you know, then you're going to be able to fill a, a different hole uh, over the course of the offseason and kind of have a stronger roster across the board. Um, so yeah, obviously we hope that uh, he's able to kind of carry that you know, play that he had over this last month of the season, uh, in, into next year and, and be kind of, you know, this player, this dominant top end tackle, um, that we've known for a while for at least one more year. The next player on the pro football focus, second team, all pro list is going to be Robbie gold. He is the second highest graded kicker on field goals and extra points. He hit 17 of 18, uh, and from 40 of 49, and he was four for four from 50 plus. What's super interesting is why he was not first team all pro. Yeah, he had there. So there were a couple people, um, you know, uh, there was an article that went up on Niners Nation about it, of course, and, and talking about him there. And everybody was kind of like, oh, this is so weird. Why isn't he, you know, it's, this is an egregious decision. Uh, why isn't Robbie Gold on, on the first team? And it basically came down to, so I, I did the special teams grading, at least the first run of grading on uh, nearly every single 49ers game this year uh, for PFF. So was able to, to kind of watch and go through and grade all these games. And, and the thing uh, really that made the difference between him and Matt Prater, who was the, the guy that ended up getting the first team nod. Um, it was a, actually a very small difference in the grading. And so uh, it really came down to gold missing an extra point in week three, um, which is going to ding him with a pretty big negative in our system. Um, and then the other kind of thing there that you saw that was a, was a factor was the long field goals, right? The most difficult field goals. So the 50 plus yarders, Gold hit all of his opportunities there, but he didn't have many of them, right? Only four for four. And those were all, you know, of the shorter 50-yard varieties. So they were just just a barely just barely over 50, whereas Prater um, hit seven, 50-plus. Four of those were over 55, which is the highest grade that you can get as a, as a field goal kicker in our system. Um, and then he had an additional one that was over 50 that was a, a game winner. So it receives a little bit of a bump there at the end. So basically, Prater had more of the great, you know, quote unquote, great kicks um, there. And that was enough to push him ahead of gold who just had a a whole bunch of really good kicks. Um, And and so that was kind of ultimately the difference there. But yeah, if he would have made that extra point, even if we went down to only that, he would have tied Prater uh, in the grading on field goals and extra points. And I think with the rest of the stuff, you probably could have made a a decent argument that he gets kind of the tiebreaker there. Perhaps if he makes that extra point in week three, the Niners don't have to go for two. The Niners aren't down by two and and when they failed on that two-point conversion of course and they had to kick the onside kick which they eventually make but then fail to drive down for the field goal perhaps that game ends in a tie and the Niners somehow are able to pull it out in overtime yeah 
That would be an interesting way. And to, then to what if they didn't trade for Jimmy Garoppolo and this whole season was a waste? You so shut maybe, your whore mouth. Maybe it was a it was all fate. You know, we needed to lose nine straight games to open the season so that we could have Jimmy. I love it. Love it. So that's pretty much the end of the rundown. And now we're going to get to more of the season review and more of the season recap. Really what this season was about was at the beginning of the year, we knew that this was not going to be a great year. What this season was about was laying the foundation for what was going to come in the future. We all thought this year was going to very much be a rebuilding year. And we had no idea that some of the things that ended up happening were going to kind of propel the Niners into, at this point, what is going to be the darling team for next year. We are going to be the zero to hero team next year. We're going to be the worst to first story. We're going to be that trendy, sexy pick that everyone's going to pick next year. It's, it's, I mean, it's already happening, right? They talked about it on Good Morning Football yeah. um, earlier this week that like the bandwagon's filling up already. We are the highest. If you look at all the power rankings, both on ESPN and NFL.com, those are the only two that I've seen so far. We are the highest non-playoff ranked team, I think. Oh, no, no, we're the highest team ranked with a losing record. We're, we're ranked 15th, I think, in both of those uh, areas i think it, i saw the nfl.com one we were above the big thing there was we were above the seahawks the seahawks yeah uh, and we were 12th though uh, i think it was 12th and then the seahawks were 13th in the nfl.com ones. Yeah. i haven't seen the spn ones but it's it's um, it's getting a little crazy but <laughs> it, it's still still though what what we wanted to get out of this year was exactly what we got was riding the ship towards where we needed to go we got some solid performances from a roster that was turned over basically over 50% of which was turned over, and then over the course of the year was turned over even more because of injury. You saw young players producing, and you saw some players with some really, really notable grades. I mean, if you look at the, the PFF grades and their ranks by position, you've got a really, really good combination of brand new players, young players, and veterans that are going to create the core of this 49er team. You've got Ruben Foster, who's already a superstar. He's the fourth-ranked linebacker. Buckner, who's the sixth-ranked interior defender. Joe Staley, who's the second-ranked tackle. Jaquaski Tart, 18th-ranked safety. Jimmy Garoppolo, 10th-ranked quarterback. Pierre Garçon, 15th-ranked wide receiver. Eric Reed, soon-to-be Seahawk, ranked 32nd overall Too for safeties. <laughs> Akella Witherspoon, ranked 43rd. Kawan Williams, who had a hell of a season turnaround, 46th. And Marquise Goodwin, who, with a grade of 80, is 24th amongst wide receivers. I mean, that's a pretty diverse nucleus of rookies, vets, and, you know, new 49ers and old 49ers that are going to help make and move this team forward. Right. I think, you, you know, you kind of break that down a little bit in, into some different groups, and it's you have uh, the, the Garcons of the world, the Staley's of the world that are kind of those core veteran players that you have, right? Uh, you have a couple of superstars. We talked, right, the big thing over the, the course of this whole last offseason uh, and even even longer was that we we don't have any like real blue chip players, right? The the superstar players that you need. I mean, if you're gonna go and be a team that that is making the playoffs consistently, you need a couple of those guys on each side of the ball, and they haven't had that, right? We thought that Buckner was going to get there, and he did this year, and so you have that one. And then Foster comes in and is a star, you know, as soon as he's able to actually get on the field and stay on the field over the second half of the season. Uh, and, and then you have, you know, another group of younger players who we like where their development's going, right? You like the players like Akella Witherspoon, like Jaquaski Tart, what he was able to do, uh, you know, in a shortened season this year. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, somebody like Marquise Goodwin, who isn't quite in the same mold, I think, as, as the, the rookie class, of course, or second year players. 
but another younger player who kind of developed uh, into a different type of player than we've seen him be previously in his career, right? He was doing a lot more things, showing a lot more versatility, and it, he kind of helps to change the conversation at receiver, especially when you factor in bringing somebody like Garcon back, who I think it's easy to forget, you know, Gar- everything that happened with Garcon was pre-Jimmy Garoppolo, and that feels like an entirely different season from the one that we just really wrapped does. up. Uh, and, and it's very easy to forget that he was balling out with Brian Hoyer and CJ Beathard. As he his was on a thousand yard wide receiver pace. Uh, and then Marquise Goodwin almost gets to a thousand yards were it not for a concussion in the game against the Rams, but a very scary concussion, which by the way, glad he's okay. Yes. Dude's already gone through enough this season. Can we just Seriously. leave his brain intact? Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, you, you all of a sudden and, and Garoppolo, no question is the biggest thing there. We've talked about how he just completely changes the conversation for the off season that we're about to enter and, and kind of what team needs are and what their priorities should be and all that stuff. Um, everything is on a, a new trajectory with him in, in the fold there. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, now you're starting to see the nucleus of players that you can start to build around and, and that are going to be on these next few, what we hope are very good 49ers teams. So at the end of the year, we ended it based on Football Outsiders DVOA rankings 20th overall, but we, re- but we ended 12th in weighted DVOA, which was helped quite a bit by beating up on the Rams, and DVOA can't really differentiate between you rested your starters Rams and regular Rams. So to the Football Outsiders computers, it looks like we beat up handily on the, the Jared Goff, one. yeah, the number, the number one. one team in DVOA entering the week. <laughs> so take that with a bit of a grain of salt. But even then, if you take a look at the weighted rankings, which gives more importance to the latter half of the year and less to the beginning, you basically have, you know, kind of BC and AC. You've got, you know, before Christ and after Christ, which, or AD. BJ and AJ. Yeah. Before uh, Jimmy before and Before Jimmy, Jimmy Jesus and after Jimmy Jesus, mm-hmm. right? So you've got BG and AG, and that's really the story of this year. It's what's going to happen when you get Jimmy Jesus in here and all of a sudden time changes, you've got zero and, and that's that. And now we look forward and the future is incredibly bright. So b- before we get to the comparing the storylines bit of the show, I, I want to ask you, David, to on the spot, didn't prep for it and you can't use brick by brick, but give me, give me your, oh God, your one, like your, your, your marketing slogan for what 2017 was for the 49ers. Oh man. Um, I mean, the only thing that jumps to mind and I'm, I'm terrible at this, you'll probably have a much better answer than me, but like, is we, we were joking, um, before the season, we had those, uh, hope posters made with, with John Lynn. I think you just put Jimmy's actual face because it's so beautiful on that (laughs) and just, and, and, and you can throw, you don't even have to put words. You could really just put a picture of him there. And I mean, that's everything, right? That it, it, again, it completely changes Everything with this franchise, when you have a quarterback that you feel confident being, uh, you know, a, a top 10 player. And I, th- I think we both think that he can go even higher than that. But right now, I think that's kind of where he was at, right? Is right in that kind of top 10 range, 8, 10, uh, in, in, somewhere in that that ballpark. Um, and when you have a guy that you think you can rely on uh, to perform at that level consistently, I mean, it changes how you approach things from a team building standpoint. Uh, everything. So, I mean, uh, yeah, that's, that's it to me. It's, it's really all, all about Jimmy. Yeah. For me, I, I just think of the old NFL films, kind of like season recaps, the ones that you would have to get on VHS 
and you know like John Vicenda's voice on there like with the super markety kind of gimmicks and I just imagine his deep voice going like saving San Francisco you know like Shanahan right, yeah. like Shanahan saves it Lynch saves it Garoppolo saves it well, because when you when you think about what this franchise was before Shanahan got here before Lynch got here and even a little after like you're still kind of a little skeptical you don't know how it's going to happen and then all of a sudden Jimmy Garoppolo gets here it, it's it's a complete 180 to where we were just 12 months ago we we looked at what our what our show title was for episode 179 which was this show 12 months ago yep. it was the first show after the season ended and the literal title in our agenda for the show last year was episode 179 blow it all the fuck up that that's what it was last year and and we've gone from blow it all the fuck up to literally saving san francisco because that's what they did shanahan and lynch and garoppolo they are literally taking this franchise that couldn't seem to get out of its own way that fired jim harbaugh that was infighting and sniping and trent balky and parag marate and everyone was just it was a mess and farting at press conferences and Chip, I mean, you've got it, it was in glasses that attach detach in the middle, and you're just like, "What? How is this a thing?" It just it felt like Jim Harbaugh was so fleeting. You know, you, you had Jim yeah. Harbaugh, and and you had Dennis Erickson, and you had God, remember that guy in 2007, and Ken Dorsey, and then you had Pants on the Ground and Mike Singletary, and and you had all of that shit, and then it was like, "Oh crap, we got a coach," and then it was like, "Oh." Fuck no, we don't. We screwed it all up. Exactly. And now it it's it it to me, that's what it feels like. To me, it feels like this is saving San Francisco. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think there's it's weird to uh see a lot of these, you know, we talk about the uncertainty involved in a lot of this and trying to to predict what's gonna happen and how you kind of have to build that uncertainty into it when when you're trying to make predictions about things. And and I think that's what keeps us, you know, especially over the past few years. Uh, a little bit more down than other people because I think a lot of times people as fans especially want to assume the best case scenario you want to assume the rookie that you take at the top of the first round is going to develop in this nice linear fashion and and rise to stardom right and it just the reality doesn't happen that way a lot of the time and so I think we've tried to build in a lot of that but it's it's now kind of seemed like they've caught some breaks and over the last uh you know 12 months since since we had that episode things have kind of fallen into place in, in almost the best possible way for them. And, and I think uh, it's, it's just crazy to think, I mean, this was obviously no one knew before the season, um, you know, after this, at the point in which the season started, nobody knew or thought that we were going to get Jimmy Grapple in the middle of the year and, and have that change everything. Um, but it's just remarkable how much that with a competent coach and a, a general manager in front office that seems to be in unison, um, it just kind of completely changed things overnight. It seems like the two quarterbacks that John Clayton of ESPN predicted the Niners were going to get at the, like in the middle of uh, last year, I think try and guess who they are. I'll give you two guesses. That's all you get. Oh no. Um, well, one of them, Kirk cousins. Nope. No. Garoppolo. Nope. No. Nope. Tyrod Taylor and Nick Foles. Oh my! Those God. are the two quarterbacks that John Clayton predicted going like, to the Niners. Love me some Tyrod. I love Tyrod, oh and, and so the idea was Chip Kelly and you know Tyrod and the whole thing. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean that that's where we were at. That's where we were at. Now you know. So let's let's look at the storylines. Let's compare what the the feeling was for this team in September, and then look at where they ended in January. Because when you look at the top line storylines, you can see some of the things you know were 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 they were accurate. 
and you can see some of the things that were just completely different than what, what you would expect. So the number one storyline in September was that the 49ers were transitioning to brand new systems. Of course, they were wondering whether or not Brian Hoyer could be the stopgap quarterback that the team needed. And then on the, on the defensive side of the ball, you were looking what, at what you were going to do with all those damn 3-4 defensive end like linemen with Eric Armstead. And then you've got Forrest Buckner and then Solomon Thomas. It's like, are you drafting redundancy at the, the defensive line spot? The other big storyline was the youth movement and whether or not it was going to pay dividends. We were cutting players like Jeremy Curley and Ahmad Brooks and players like Solomon Thomas, Trent Taylor, Matt Breida, Kendrick Bourne, CJ Beathard were all making the roster. And this was a departure from the way the 49ers had been playing, even under Jim Harbaugh. They were not a rookie heavy team because he had a pretty loaded roster even when he joined. And then especially after that first preseason game, you've got the emerging problems at cornerback. Tyreek Hill torched Rashard Robinson in the preseason. He did not have a good preseason. You had Dante Johnson, who was, you know, not a, a super, you know, great prospect. The Keller Witherspoon didn't start the first couple of games of the year. Those were the kind of super big storylines coming into the season. And then in January, it's like, hey, these new systems are awesome. <laughs> this, this, this Kyle Shanahan offense is great. It's just scheming wide receivers open left and right. The transition to that 4-3 defense is great. You've got DeForest Buckner, who's playing at an all-pro level. And, and then you've got a phenomenal rookie class. You've got Solomon Thomas, who's living up to the billing of a run defender, still has some work to do as a pass rusher, but we knew that coming into the year. Ruben Foster is the second-highest-graded rookie from the 2017 class. No linebacker in football has made more positive plays in run defense than Ruben Foster. He's earned a positive grade on a league-leading 19.7% of his plays against the run, which is almost double league average. The dude's ridiculous. Akella Witherspoon is immediately the team's best corner. And in the past, we've kind of used that as a knock on players, where it's like, hey, you're the team's best corner. But, like, <laughs> uh, but that's actually not a knock on Witherspoon. He's actually playing really, really good football. C.J. Beathard is an amazing crash test dummy. Really good at taking hits. George Kittle's 43 catches and 515 receiving yards are franchise records for a rookie tight end. Trent Taylor stocked his lunch pail with third down receptions. <laughs> and Adrian Colbert, uh, with his grade and his play at free safety, has kind of created a bit of a problem, but it's a good problem in that you are now considering what you're going to do with Jimmy Ward at the safety position. And it's it, while, yes, it can be kind of problematic, those are the kinds of problems you want to have. You want to have problems where you're trying to figure out where to put a bunch of really good players on the field at the same time. It, it's so hard not to feel just incredibly optimistic about this rookie class. I mean, the, the one thing that keeps me mildly in check is looking back at the 2011 draft class, because at the time, right after that first season, you get the first year with Harbaugh in there and you're feeling great. You know, 2012 comes around, you're feeling awesome about that class, right? That's Alden Smith looking like one of the best pass rushers in the entire league. Colin Kaepernick was, you know, at the, the, the kind of the height of his powers there. You think you have quality players like Chris Culliver and Kendall Hunter. Kilgore had come in and, and uh, you know, had started to take over a starting role. Um, you had Bruce Miller in that draft class. So it was, you know, you were getting guys at the top. You know, you thought you had maybe the two more, most important positions in football covered, right? And corner, uh, excuse me, quarterback and your, your pass rusher there. And then also getting some role players to fill out the rest of the draft and you're feeling great about things. And then now, obviously, basically, none of those guys are are really worth all that much. So what you're saying is hide the alcohol. Yeah. So and and, and there were obviously some extenuating circumstances there with with several of those players. Um, 
but I think that's kind of the one thing that keeps me mildly in check. But again, it's, uh, this was a rookie class that at the time of the draft, I think that we really fell in love with, uh, and were high on a lot of players at the end of the draft. A lot of our favorite players in this class were the fifth rounders or, you know, an undrafted guy in, in Brita. Um, and, and then you had a, somebody that we weren't, um, really high on early in Adrian Colbert, but again, a late round pick that comes in and makes an impact. And so I think when you're at the point where you are getting those sort of contributions from guys on day three, that, that you feel pretty good about their ability to come in and be quality role players, you know, Kittle and, and Trent Taylor are going to be, I think, very good pieces for this offense as it becomes, you know, hopefully much better over the course of the next couple of years. Uh, and, and it's just, it's incredible what they've done in year one. Um, and you see the development, I think with all of them over the course of the year, right? There were some ups and downs, especially early on, but kind of everybody was able to get better as the season went on and really finish the year on a high note. The thing that is exciting for me about the draft class is that there very much seems to be a plan in place for both the type of player they are drafting and how they're going to use them. You think of someone like a Trent Taylor, and I mean, that dude's that he's not going to be your traditional really big wide receiver that you're going to go after and get. And you look at players like Adrian Colbert, who very much felt at the time. And I remember when we covered his his pick during our draft recap show, we said, here's here's an athlete. Here's a height, weight, speed guy that you hope can develop into something more. But if he doesn't, it's a seventh round draft pick. That's who you want to go after in the seventh round. Draft the guys that have the athletic part figured out and then see if they can put everything else together. And that's what we got in Adrian Colbert. We got someone who has the physical tools and was able to put it all together after he had a little bit of time to get seasoned. And, and there is a strategy there. There's, there's some logic there. And the team knows how to use players like that. It's no longer a, I'm going to get a player that doesn't seem to match this system. And, and that, I think, is the part that, that buoys me is that, yes, you've got that marriage between general manager and head coach where they do talk to each other. They do say, this is the kind of guy I want. This is who I envision in my system. Now let's go out and get him. And then the Adam Peters and John Lynch's of the world can go and do that. Definitely. I think that's such a good point too, about somebody like Colbert, right? We, we talked a lot about with Solomon Thomas and, and a reason that we were both kind of okay with him because those guys at the top of the draft, you're really looking for the total package, right? You want the guys that produced at a high level, um, the guys that bring the top end athleticism, you know, they're, they've got everything there. They check all of the boxes. Those are your top 10 picks. But once you get into the later rounds and the further, further down you move, you kind of have to choose one or the other, right? You either want to take chances on guys that just had crazy production, even though they don't really fit the mold that you're looking for. Somebody like a Chris Borland there comes to mind, right? Where he wasn't a guy from a trait perspective that people were raving about, right? But he was somebody that had just crazy production in college and he's able to come in and make an impact uh, once he gets to the NFL or you go the opposite route, right? You go with the guys that have the crazy athleticism that maybe aren't as polished from a technique standpoint, and you feel like you can coach them up and kind of add some of the, the football skills that they need to be a contributor. So I think those are the directions. Yet you, you can't go with the guys that are just a little bit, you know, they got a little bit of production and then a little bit of athleticism. Like th- those aren't doing anything for you at the end, right? You got to hope that you can develop one side of it and that they have the other stuff that's there already. And I think that's kind of the direction that we've seen them take with at least this first draft class. So overall, when we think of storylines, most of the storylines that you were going into the year, came, they turned out positively. We, we kind of had a feeling that the offensive system was not going to be an issue. 
But even the defensive system, which we're going to get into a little bit when we get into our season awards, returned some really great dividends for the 49ers. And the first-year coordinator, Robert Sala, also proved that he should indeed retain his job for next year. And the one really kind of big storyline, which was the problems at cornerback, we kind of ended up net-net in the same place when it comes to that storyline. We thought we would have Rashard Robinson, and we're going to talk about him a little bit later as well, but we thought we had Rashard Robinson at one corner spot, and you'd eventually get a Keller Witherspoon, and that was going to be your starting quarterback, cornerback duo. Well, now Rashard Robinson is no longer a 49er. I think you still found a starting caliber corner in a Keller Witherspoon yep. and someone who still has room to grow and could be a legit you know, top 10 corner in the league if he fully grows into his potential. And now you're looking for your other corner, but you seem to have found a free agent, you know, kind of someone who's also improved in Kawan Williams. And you've got the ammo and you've got the draft position to go and get that corner if indeed you want. So you, you can't solve everything in a year. And now the Niners can go and, and solve that corner problem, knowing that they've got some fixed pieces elsewhere. Right. It, things are more defined right now, right? We, we joked all the time over the last offseason, last couple off seasons about how it was kind of pointless to go over their needs because they need everything. You know, everything is a need. There's not a single position where they can't get better. And now those things are slowly becoming more defined, right? You're starting to have some positions of strength, some positions that, okay, maybe we see this as being a need like receiver, I think has kind of become that where this is going to be a need here in the next couple of years, because, you know, Garcon's getting a little bit older uh, and, and you don't have any kind of real big impact players behind that. And but right now you see Goodwin come in. Right. And you're starting to feel a little bit better. Trent Taylor's emergence over the course of the season. And you're like, OK, we don't maybe we don't have to get this now if it doesn't break. Right. Right. If we don't have the opportunity that, that is right and that makes sense to get a, a top end contributor, we can kind of punt that to another to the next offseason. And, and so things become more defined. It's easier to have, uh, I think, a more coherent plan going into the offseason. Um, and it's just yeah, it, it's just a much better situation now entering this offseason than we were a year ago. All right. It is season awards time. Let's talk both about the season awards that we thought was go- were going to happen and the season awards that we're actually going to dole out here at the end of the 2017 year for the 49ers. Let's start with that top line MVP. In the preseason, David, who did you pick? So I had Eric Reed as the guy, and I kind of hedged a little bit on Buckner. I went back, actually, and listened, because, of course, in, in typical uh, us fashion, which you guys can't see this, but a lot of times our notes are, uh, are sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally incomplete, right? Uh, and this was the case with our preseason They were prompts. Uh, stuff. Yeah, they, they, we had the, uh, the titles of the awards, but not the actual awards that we were going to give out. I was going to let us go with how we felt. <laughs> so I went back and listened to get our actual picks and stuff for this. Um, and yeah, it was like, okay, Buckner obviously gets a mention, but really felt like Eric Reed, um, was going to be able to come into, you know, a system that we thought felt, uh, fit him very, very well. And he was kind of, you know, one of the few experienced players on the, on the defense. Um, and, and, you know, obviously has been a talented player in the league for a while, thought things were going to break right for him to have a big year. Um, injuries kind of limited that a little bit, but and so uh, that's where dal- I was at. His yeah. dalliance at linebacker also didn't help. Sure. Yeah, but yeah. My pick was Brian Hoyer. And part of it was because I let David go first and he stole Eric Reed, which I was also high on moving into that system. But I also thought that if the Niners were going to have any success, they were going to need to get some really competent play out of a stopgap quarterback. And the quarterback is usually picked as the team captain, and they usually have their kind of elevated into that leadership position. And I thought Brian Hoyer would really have one of the better years of his career 
under the Shanahan system and under Shanahan's tutelage. So I thought this is the guy who's probably going to be the, the, the best of a bunch that you're not going to want to be the bunch of, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, but the end of the year is here. Who's the actual uh, MVP this year? I think it's clearly Buckner, right? When you, when you talk about level of play throughout the entire season, because Foster, I think, was there on a similar level, right? But we only got him for half the year. Um, and, and so again, you add in the fact that DeForest Buckner is playing, uh, an insane number of snaps, uh, just like he did in year one. He played over 800 snaps this year, which still put him, I think top 10 in terms of snaps for defensive interior linemen. Uh, yeah, which he was, he, he was over- there again. It wasn't the thousand plus that he had, you know, he was just over a thousand, uh, in, in year one. So we, we did tone things down a little bit for him, uh, but it was still a high number. And so you get, again, he's on the field and. And having a player that you can rely on like that is is a skill in and of itself. Um, and then you get the top end production that we got from him, you know, basically throughout the entire season. I think he's a pretty clear and obvious and choice. For those of you that listen to the show and have been for a while, or for Niner fans everywhere, you know or are probably very familiar with the quality of play that DeForest Buckner brings to the table. But DeForest Buckner is one of those players that is is not very well known around other NFL fans just because he's not on a great team. And he also plays a non-glamorous position. He doesn't put, he had three sacks. Yeah. You know, that's not somebody that, that a, a casual fan is going to look at necessarily and say like, oh yeah, that guy's tearing things up. Exactly. But he is playing at, at an all pro level and he is playing very, very good football. And if the Niners do end up making a playoff run next year, you're going to see a lot of stories about DeForest Buckner and DeForest Buckner's play. And it's probably not going to be any better than it was maybe this year. It's just that he's probably just going to be on a better team. Yeah, and he had, so uh, just to, to wrap up the, the closed loop on the snaps, 867 snaps, which was fourth among interior defenders this year. So, Well, look at that. All right, so Offensive Player of the Year. In the preseason, I picked Joe Staley. I, I thought that he was going to be basically the bright spot on an offense that had a lot of missing pieces. I was not super, again, the, I, didn't, I think the offense would have a lot of problems going into the year and that the, the stalwart of that team was going to be Joe Staley. And so I thought in a year where Hyde may not play all 16 games, Marquis Goodwin may just run straight a lot, and <laughs> you don't know what you're going to get out of the quarterback, the, the guy who's going to be the most consistent is going to be Joe Staley. Uh, and so that's who I thought was going to be the the, uh, the preseason offensive player of the year. Yeah, I had a sort of a similar line of thinking in, in that, I didn't think the offense was going to be very good. I was, I think, more down on the passing game and, and Brian Hoyer and everything there uh, than you were. So I went Carlos Hyde, right? I was like, if you got to pick somebody on offense, I, I, I didn't have high hopes for what they were going to be able to do in year one. Um, and so I thought that Hyde, just from sheer volume, was going to be kind of the the guy that would get it, right? He would be the one uh, that got most of the carries and, and all of that stuff. And, and they were going to rely on the run game a little bit. Um, and he was just kind of the one guy out of, uh, you know, what I thought would be an uninspiring offense. So he was my preseason pick. Um, but I, I think things went a little bit differently. Yeah. So our, our end of year offensive player of the year is going to be Marquise Goodwin. He's a wide receiver that, that started out a little bit like we expected, just running a lot of deep routes and dropping a couple of passes. But over the course of the year, he really developed into a more well-rounded receiver, a receiver who did more when more was asked of him. 
And he made a lot of very, very ridiculous catches. He made a lot of really positive plays at the wide receiver position. He wasn't just someone who ran fast, even though he could also do that very, very well. So overall, he was the consistent driver of the offense, especially when you got a quarterback who could get him the ball in the intermediate intermediate area on a more consistent basis. And so overall, I was just, it was super impressive to see him develop into the wide receiver that almost hit a thousand yards. And I wish he would have, but you know, he'll always be a thousand yard receiver in my heart. And obviously you can make a, a strong argument that Jimmy Garoppolo should get that, even though he only started in five games and that's not lost on us by any stretch. Uh, I think it was just, it made sense to go with somebody like Goodwin because again, it was being there from beginning to end. And then just moved. We thought we would go with the whole unit. We went, we went with the run defense. The run defense was a unit that last year was, was not great. They were, the, they were the worst unit in the league in terms of overall yards allowed. And when you looked at DVOA, which is more of a per-play efficiency metric, they finished 31st in 2016. But this year, they turned that around quite a bit and actually ended more towards the middle of the pack, which is what we were hoping to see at the beginning of the year. Right. It was, uh, it was something that we expected, I think, a little bit because of the change in scheme, right? We talked about one of the big benefits of going to a single high scheme is dropping that safety down in the box and getting an extra guy, uh, you know, in your front as a run defender, right? That's, that's closer to the line of scrimmage. So we expected some returns there, but then we had, you know, players step up and it got shaky there at points, especially when injuries were, were kind of uh, going a little bit nuts in the middle of the season there. But Brock, early Brock Coyle, early Brock Coyle and Ray Ray Armstrong were not exactly inspiring uh, linebackers. No, it was like you get rid of Navarro Bowman, who, you know, admittedly wasn't playing all that well to, st- to start the year. And then Foster's, you know, hurt and not ready still. And, and yeah, you're you're trotting those guys out there at linebacker. Um, and then you're, you're all of a sudden, you know, Eric Armstead's going down. That's hurting your defensive line. But we saw guys, you know, pick up. I mean, Foster by himself kind of changes the run defense there and makes a huge impact. But we saw guys like Sheldon Day, um, you know, step up, you know, that was picked up essentially off the street, claiming him off waivers in the middle of the season. Which um, I think that's the best non-Garoppolo acquisition throughout the year is Sheldon Day. Yeah, because and we had quite a few of them. Uh, Dayton Jones would be one. He's now he's still playing football. It's not for the Niners. Yeah. Uh, you, who else? We've got. Uh, uh, I guess we got rid I mean, of. There were of a, Foster. A, yeah, Lee J. Doosable. Doosable, yeah. Had to learn how to pronounce his name. Came and went. Now he's just, we should have just kept it at Legger. Knew it. Knew I, love, it I love good old Legger. Um, yeah, I think he's he's the one guy that, you know, uh, the non-Garoppolo guy that uh, I think could be, have a role next year, right? A lot of times you guys you're picking up in the middle of the season, you just need him because you need bodies, right? This is somebody that's available right now. We're dealing with injuries. We need somebody. The Sean Drones in. of the world. Exactly. And, and I think a lot of times, there's and rightfully so there is the the line of thinking that like okay well he's not necessarily going to be a guy that we take into next year because if i can find him in the middle of the year i can find the next person that can fill that role if if it comes down to that situation um but he's a guy i think with some talent that has an opportunity to become a depth player on the defensive line um beyond this season the 49ers did not allow a team over 100 yards in the final five games of the year which is pretty impressive in and of itself, especially considering they were facing some teams that were very, very good at rushing the football, namely the Tennessee Titans and the Jacksonville Jaguars. So I think it's a great feat for the defense, and I think it's one of the many reasons that I do not want to replace Robert Sala with good old Vic Fangio. 
But now let's get to the most memorable or favorite play. And I think both David and I had one play in mind, both because of its emotional impact and because of the fact that it helped contribute to the very first win of the 49ers season in week 10. And that's going to be that 83-yard touchdown pass to Marquise Goodwin. Third down and eight. Nice pickup. Wide open for the speedster, Goodwin. And Goodwin is gone. A 49er touchdown. That play came on the heels of Marquise Goodwin losing his infant son just hours before that morning. Can you believe that? It was that morning, and then he's out there running routes. And, and that pass, I mean, that was on the Yankee concept, which we've talked about a lot on this, on this show over the course of the year. Now, that was the, remember, this was the Mills. Oh, no, that's right. It was Mills. It was so the this pin was, concept. Yeah, big, a big thing that we talked about um, in that kind of game recap following. Uh, and, but I think, yeah, it, it kind of encapsulates a lot of this season, a lot of the good non-Jimmy Garoppolo things about this year, right? And it was Shanahan's ability to scheme stuff open, right? And, and the deep post is a big part of his offense and what they do from a play action standpoint and just in the passing game in general. And so you had him doing that. You had the big moment for Marquise Goodwin, who, again, we talked about his development and then that and come up with this big play uh, that, that really helped them get their first win. That was huge. And so I think, yeah, this play was just uh, very emblematic of, of kind of the 49ers season, um, especially when you're kind of removing Jimmy from the equation a little bit, which feels like cheating. Best game of the year. I think that goes to week three versus the Rams with honorable mention going to week 16 versus the Jaguars simply because of the level of competition that you ended up beating in week 16, which was an AFC playoff team with a remarkably good defense, two of the best corners in football or one of the best running games in the year or, or on the year. And you end up held, holding, the whole, holding the whole team under 100 yards and you end up passing for a ridiculous amount of yards on a pass defense where some of the Jaguars defenders are saying they were exposed. Yeah, I think the, the Rams game was the most fun um, just because of some of the crazy things that happened in that game and kind of the general back and forth uh, th- that you had. But I think the Jaguars, from just a purely 49ers perspective, was the most impressive, right, for all the reasons that you mentioned there. Um, so I think those were definitely two of the games that, that stood out over the course of the season uh, above the rest. All right, missed most disappointing player. I'm going to go, this is going to be where you think we're going to talk about Solomon Thomas. And the, I'm not going to lie, he's kind of up there for me only because of his draft position. Sure. I, I really do, when, when I look back, I, I don't think that he is a disappointment or a bust or a problem draft pick. I still think that he's got time to put things together. DeForest Buckner was not playing at an all-pro level last year. He is this year. Give the dude some time to learn a difficult position. But I do think back and I think, we could have had Marshawn Lattimore. That would have been a pretty good pick. Sure. Yeah. It's, I, it's I, hard not I, to think that. Yeah. I would have I liked that. You know? <laughs> and, and, and I think that the, the only argument that does kind of ring true for me, even though he's not my most disappointing player this year, the one argument that does ring true is that he was the third overall draft pick. And you would hope that you see a little bit more from your third overall draft pick in year one even though I don't think he's as bad as everyone has been saying that he is. Definitely. There, there was plenty there to, to still have faith that he's going to develop into a good player. Again, it's, it's far too early to start going um, with, with bust or any, totally any sort of labels like that. Totally agree. Um, I think so disappointing, right? A lot of that has to do with expectations, right? In order for somebody to be disappointing, they had to have relatively high expectations going into the season. I think at least for us, if you were listening to, to the podcast a lot, we, 
were high on Solomon Thomas, but we knew that this was going to be a process, right? We knew that it was going to take some time for him to develop as a pass rusher and that that wasn't going to come right away. I think the guy that really stood out to me um, was Richard Robinson. And, and I think he's the, the person that was most disappointing to me because we did kind of buy in a little bit to the idea that he could be a number one corner. You know, I think we, it was weird. We were simultaneously high on Richard Robinson and, and thought that he was a promising talent but somehow lower than a lot of the other, uh, you know, kind of people that cover the 49ers who I think it really sold, you know, uh, he, he had them sold that he was going to be kind of a top cornerback in the league this it's year. It's because he's got a lot of dog in him. It, <laughs> you know, that's, love my, that, that's love my, that phrase. It's my uh, favorite fucking phrase. I hate that. <laughs> but I think to go from that sort of expectation level, right? Uh, a player that we expect to be a number one cornerback kind of going into the season, uh, to being no longer on your roster uh, just after the midway point of the year, um, that's that's pretty disappointing. And he was he was bad for for a lot of that stretch. You know, he had some good moments. There were a couple of good games in there um, that was mixed in, but it was it was just a lot of bad from him, and and really didn't see the sort of development that you were hoping for. And then you factor in a lot of the rumblings that you hear with off field stuff, and it just kind of proved to be not worth the hassle. And and that's why you ship him off to New York. Um, so I think that, you know, again, expectations have to play a big role in that. And, and I think he fits the bill most. The head scratching stat of 2017, we're going to go twofold here. One's going to be about pace. The 49ers actually led the league in total seconds per play at 25.58 seconds per play. That was first overall in the NFL. And this is, of, co- of course, in the post Chip Kelly era. The Niners did not lead the league in pace in Chip Kelly's year. And yet they did so in the year after. Chip Kelly left. Incidentally, the number one team in situation neutral pace, meaning when you're not like up by a lot or down by a lot, was the LA Rams. They led the league when it came to situation neutral pace. It's almost like, you know, the offensive coaches that are on the tip of the spear when it comes to offenses don't mind pace and think it's kind of a good thing. If you just throw a lot of words into your play call instead and get under center every once in a while, I guess everybody's just going to be okay with it and pretend like it's not actually happening. And their defenses were no worse for it. Yep. Um, yeah, it's just kind of... God, it's so... The pace thing will never, <laughs> never make me make me not laugh. What the hell was the other stat? We had another stat. In, oh, um, it was uh, yards, before, we, yards before contact for Matt Breed yes, and Carlos Hyde. Um, so I think there there were a lot of things, you know, with kind of the the Hyde-Breeda relationship and, and, and the type of carries that they got there and just kind of discrepancies between their play. Um, one of the things from a, a stat standpoint that was really, again, fits the head-scratching bill because... While I have, you know, I think a decent theory as to why that might be, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface. And so that is the, the number of yards that each player averaged before being contacted. And so the reason that there, and there's a large discrepancy here, which I'll get to in just a moment, but the, the reason I think that that's head scratching, right, is because you're dealing with the same scheme, the same offensive line blocking for them. Um, you know, I, I, I had some people mention uh, it points throughout the year that like, oh, this is because Brita is getting, you know, like the third and 20 carries when the defense isn't playing run. And so he's got a, you know, a little bit of a head start there before he actually gets to the defense. And it, they, they weren't runs that matter. And that really wasn't the case. Um, and so what you had is among running backs that had at least 100 carries on the season, Brita had the most yards before contact per attempt, averaged 2.33 yards before contact every single time that he ran the ball. Carlos Hyde was about middle of the pack, though, at 1.38. So there's a, nearly a full yard difference there 
in what they're getting before they're contacted by a defender. And that just doesn't really make a lot of sense on the surface. Again, same scheme, same guys blocking for them, going up against the same defenses. Um, it's, it's just a little strange to see that sort of discrepancy. The one thing that I can kind of point to from watching, you know, film throughout the season that, that maybe lends itself to that is I think Brita on the outside zone plays in particular reads those plays a little bit better. I, I think he just has a little bit better feel for when to cut, how to set up blocks in those situations. And so there were more plays there on those runs, especially where he was able to kind of, you know, get to the second level of the defense without being contacted by somebody on the D line. Whereas Hyde, I think he's a little bit more eager to get uphill as quickly as possible. And I think that lends itself to kind of initiating contact a little bit more, right? Brita, he's not the big overpowering type of back that Hyde is. And so he's not looking to necessarily run dudes over. Whereas Hyde, he wants to get downhill a bit um, and, and kind of initiate contact a little bit more. So that's kind of the best thing, but it, it's still just kind of one of those stats that you see. And I, you look at it throughout the course of the season. And it's just, it's just kind of weird. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. All right. The last part of the podcast is where we're going to look back at our predictions that we made, the over unders, the quick hits, the things that we thought were going to happen. And we're going to see whether or not we were right. This is basically like the, are we right episode? Um, and by and large, we're about to figure it out because somebody was more right than someone else over the uh, course of the year. <laughs> So let's more, let's more right isn't how I would describe what's about to happen here. <laughs> All right. So over under, we set it at five wins. Uh, David, you had the under. I had the over. Hooray. So we both talked about five being a the crappy magic number, number right? Yeah. And, and kind of wanting to push. And, and it was really deciding, OK, we don't want to push. So are we going to go four wins or six wins? And, and I you ended up going four. You ended up going six. And it's so. the pessimist and the optimist. This, yeah, this is the, right. the, the yin and yang of this podcast is really what it's all about. Uh, but more carries. We were on that Brita train early. So we were like, all right, who's going to get more carries? Hyde or Brita? Uh, and you said Brita. I said Hyde. Uh, Hyde ended up with 240. Brita ended up with 105. Uh, so indeed, it was Carlos Hyde. Part of that, I think, was due to injury because you thought that Hyde was going to get injured. Yeah, which shows you how much we thought through the preseason predictions because I had Hyde as my offensive player of the year thinking that he would get a lot of carries and, uh, you know, would be the only person doing anything offensively uh, pretty much. And then as I got, as we moved on to this a little bit later in the episode, I was like, man, I don't know that I really think that Hyde's going to make it through the whole season though. So I think maybe there's a chance that he misses like half the year and Brita ends up getting the the carry load. uh, And that obviously did not happen. Uh, more receiving TDs. We both thought that Pierre Garcon was going to have more receiving touchdowns. Turns out it was Marquise Goodwin with a whopping two. Garcon, man, no touchdowns uh, in those first, what, eight games, I think it was, however many yep. games there before uh, he was injured. I, I have a feeling that's going to change next I year. I feel it's going to change, absolutely. Over-under on the number of games missed for Brian Hoyer. Uh, we set the over-under at two. He actually missed 10, not due to injury. Just yeah, and this was and this was a stipulation. It wasn't due to injury or anything like that. Yeah. It was just basically how many games uh, does he not play in this year? Yep, yeah, yeah. Uh, the actual number was ten. <laughs> so I went with the under. You went with the over. So you won that one. I lost that one. Over under on the receptions of twenty plus yards for Marquise Goodwin. I'm actually really impressed because we set the line at eight, and he actually had eight receptions of twenty or more yards. We both bet the under. 
and we were both wrong. And we set that line pretty aggressively. And it was funny because so we looked at um, you know who had the most or what what the number was that, of, of players that led. And these are receptions on passes that travel twenty yards, so not necessarily gain twenty. He yards. didn't catch it five yards deep and then run seventeen. Yeah. Yards. So we were really looking at the deep passes and how many of those he caught. Uh, and we even mentioned, you know, one of the things that I was talking about why I went under is like I could see him getting kind of close and then dropping a few that would have put him over or something like that. He had the eight that barely got there, but he had three drops on those <laughs> passes, too. So uh, I think, yeah, I think even though that technically goes down as a loss for both of us, we were we were pretty on the mark with that. Yeah. One. Uh, team interception leader. Uh, the actual the actual team interception leader was Eric Reed with two. Also tied with Ray Ray Armstrong, no longer on the team, with two. And Akella Witherspoon, actually, with two. Hey. Uh, David, who'd you have as the interception leader? Um, so this one didn't work out so well. <laughs> uh, so, so the rationale was I didn't think that a cornerback, I didn't think uh, a cornerback was going to get it because we you know, were down on the corners going into it. I thought it was going to be kind of maybe a safety, but then Jimmy Ward was hurt at the time. We didn't know what that was going to look like. Uh, and so I decided to settle with a linebacker and I really went against the grain because this was, again, remember back to training camp and Reuben Foster was picking off everything after not having an interception during his entire career at Alabama. So that was kind of, I think uh, a hot choice for linebacker. And I was like, ah, screw it. I'm going to go with Navarro Bowman. Um, well, that, that worked out well. And I went with Eric Reed much for the safety reasons that you, that you said, but you, you wrote down in the notes, that was a push. You that's, not a, that's not a push, push my ass. That's, that's, I'm not going to do anything to your ass. That's, well, look, when you say that out loud, it's, it's much, much different than what I actually mean. But he, he actually is the team interception leader. He is. He's tied, though. That doesn't matter. It's sole possession. He absolutely is the leader of the team in interceptions with two. That's like if, if two players get the same number of votes for MVP, are they both MVP? They're co-MVP. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. No, no, no. This is like when two players catch the ball in the end zone and come down with it, does someone end up with the reception? Yes, ask Golden Tate. How is that remotely related to interception? Because it involves inside. catching the football. That's why. <laughs> no, this is a push. You don't get it. No, it's not. This. I get that. You, you I get, get that point. One. Yeah, no, I don't. Yep. Uh, over under on number of games started for Akella Witherspoon. Uh, we set the line at five. He actually started nine. David, you bet the over. I bet the under. I lose. You win. Team leader in sacks. Uh, we thought that, oh, oh, we set the over under just number of sacks, not the player. Number no, of sacks. No, so we were, for this one, so we did two things with sacks. We did uh, pick just who led the team in sacks, which player. We, we didn't do how many sacks that they were going to get or anything, just which player led. Uh, and so I had Buckner in that. You had Doomerville. Doomerville was the actual leader with six and a half sacks. We also did a, a team over under for sacks. And so at 35, um, yeah. yeah, 35 was the over under amount. We both picked over because I think they had 33 30. the year before. Yeah, yeah, I was like 32 or 33. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it was like, ah, two more sacks is all they need to get there. Right. Let's go ahead and do over. Um, even though they ended up pressuring the quarterback at a higher rate this year, um, they, they got up to just, it was right around league average. I think they may have ended up just slightly above league average. It was like 0.4% above league average. It was yeah. something absurd, like really, right, really close. So right around, it was right around 35% um, there. They only ended up with 30 sacks. Um, so ended up under uh, our over-under total there, um, which isn't, all, again, all that surprising. I think um, they don't really have, especially once guys started to get hurt a little bit. Um, they don't have big sack guys, right? They have guys yeah. that can bother the quarterback, especially in the interior right now, but didn't have 
anybody proven outside of Doomerville, really, and, and he's kind of a more of a part-time player, so uh, he wasn't going to carry the the weight all by himself. Um, but yeah, I think I think it makes sense, even though you know we both took the L on that one. I think where they ended up isn't surprising considering who they have defensively. So overall prediction record, David went two uh, and seven. I went four and five. Three, five, and one. Negative. You went three, five, and one. Four and five. None of this contested bullshit. Uh, and, and that does it for the season recap. While I know that it wasn't super Garoppolo heavy, the last three weeks, five weeks actually, yeah, I was have saying. been all Garoppolo all the time. So if you're lusting for some of that Jimmy Garoppolo coverage, you can go back and listen to the last five weeks because we've covered him in depth over five weeks. Yeah. The, the overall, I think, season recap is just all about the positivity and hope that we're leading into the next season with because for all intents and purposes, we have the right coach. We have a coach that is aligned with the general manager. We have a great offensive system. We have the quarterback of the future and irrespective of what happens with the contract, I think, I I think they're going to get something done. And I think that Jimmy Garoppolo is going to make a ton of money. And I think the Niners have the the cap to pay him and you pay your quarterback. That's what you do. I don't know why anybody's worried about this. This is going to be fine. He's going to get signed. It's going to be a big deal, and everything's going to be okay. Everything about the ship that is the San Francisco 49ers is moving in the right direction. Everything is trending positively. The draft class was amazing. Everything that we had questions about ended up turning out mostly positive, and even something like the cornerback role, which didn't end up... It ended up in a very, very scrambled kind of way. It still ended up on the up and up, by and large. And even the most devastating, I think, move of the year, releasing Navarro Bowman, it still feels like not that big of a deal anymore. Yeah, and I and mean, that, it, I mean, it sucks from a fan perspective, right. right? Because I love Navarro Bowman, I really do. But it just, it ends up you kind of like not mattering all that much. Yeah, I think that was one uh, that, that definitely mattered much more on, uh, on that kind of personal fan level, feeling for a player that you rooted for. Um, for a long time, more than it did on an actual football and, and what's going on the field level, right? Like that it just wasn't uh, that big of an impact there. And I think it was probably better off to to make that move when they did, right? To get an idea um, as to whether any of the other linebackers on this roster outside of Foster were guys that you want to have on your roster after this year, right? I think maybe Brock Coyle is somebody that you rely on. I still think, you know, you'd, in an ideal world, world, you want to get an upgrade there, but you can live with him as a backup, right? I think he, he can be somebody, he can be what your Michael Wilhoyt was when they had yep. good defenses, right? So if you have kind of players around him uh, in that front that are very good, he can come in and fill in when he's needed and, and be okay and be fine. You're not going to be hurting in that spot. So overall, much like I'm sure you are feeling right now about the 49ers, we are extremely positive on the team. We're looking forward to the future. And over the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to have deeper breakdowns into what happened in 2017. This isn't it for the season review. We're going to look back at certain position groups. We're going to look back at individual players and even take a look at some of the most improved players and why it was that they were able to improve over the course of the year and end up in a much better place than they were. David talked about one of them, and that's one Mr. Brock Coyle. So still more to come over the course of the next month. We're not going to stop talking about the Niners just because they're not playing football. There's still lots to do and lots of fun to be had in breaking down the 2017 season because, it was, I mean, it was a lot of fun. This is I, I can't remember having this much fun with a six-win team than I have this year. 
I mean, what we got from Kyle and Jimmy, especially, uh, and, and then I think a lot of the young players that we've c- kind of become attached to defensively, especially, um, yeah, it, it was, it was a lot of fun and it was, again, it felt like two separate seasons in a lot of way. I mean, I, I think there were, were points early in the year where it felt like, man, it, it just, again, it's going to be a loss after loss. And we're just going to have to find a way to talk about this team that sucks everywhere, you know, yeah. and, and, and it's, and it's frustrating to do at times. Um, and then obviously things just completely turned around once Jimmy took over and, and things become a lot more fun again. And, and again, you have that positivity because of how much he changes the conversation with this team going forward. Uh, and I think, yeah, we're really looking for, I think this off season is going to be a lot of fun, especially right. Looking back at this rookie class and, and where this roster is, I think it's important before we start getting into stuff like off season needs and where, what they should do, which free agents they should go after all that sort of things. We have to really have a firm grasp of where this roster is at, right. And what they're, uh, where they're at from a developmental standpoint and, and kind of what holes you need to look to fill that way. So that's why we're going to dig in a little bit deeper uh, to the season before we move forward with, with more off-season content. The last time the Niners were 6-10 and 10 was 2010, and that was Mike Singletary's final year and Jim Tomsula's batting 1,000 coaching debut. The very next year, the team hired Jim Harbaugh and lost in the conference championship. The last time before that, the Niners were 6-10. and 10. I was going to say, I think you're missing the, uh, the, the good record uh, trivia stat here. The last time the Niners were 6-10 and 10 before that was when the Jim, or I'm sorry, Steve Mariucci was the head coach in his first year. And the next year, they lost in the wild card. Of course, that was the 2001 year where they went 12-4 and four and ended up losing that wild card game. So... I'm. I'm just saying. Look, I'm not one to say like. Oh, oh no, no. So you missed it. So you did miss it. Okay. Oh, it was the third. No, no, no. There was only. There's only. No, no. Time. Here's the record. The 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 record similarity thing that uh, that you really play up right now. So, uh, two years ago, 49ers, or I mean, excuse me, last year, two and fourteen. This year, six and ten. 1979, two and fourteen. Oh, get out of here. 1980, six and ten. 1981 Super Bowl. It's written. Get out of here. I'm not even going. No, I'm, oh, come I'm on. Not I, about I, recent can't history. Be- I can't believe you didn't see that. Yeah, there no, was. I, I think Eric Branch, our dude Eric Branch, tweeted out. I think somebody else no. did as well. I'm still, I'm uh, still it was, saying, like, it's hey, hilarious. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really funny. Six and ten is a platform, is all I'm saying. And we've got two recent platforms. All I'm saying is that we're going to re- win every Super Bowl for the rest of the decade. That's fine. <laughs> Jimmy Garoppolo is on pace to be undefeated forever. Forever. Yeah, I see no reason to believe otherwise. And that's all I have to say about that. Remember to go to Niners Nation. Voting ends, I think, tonight at midnight in the Jimmy Garoppolo all-name tournament. So by the time you're listening to this, chances are voting will be closed. Quick update on voting as I look up right now. Actually, I don't have it up, and I don't really want to look right now. Actually, that's not true. I do have it up. Jimmy Garoppolo, firmly in the lead. Optimus Dime, my dark horse. Okay, in the time we've recorded this, three more of you have voted for the Rising Tide. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. You're, you're out. You're not allowed here anymore. And on that note, thanks again for listening to the season recap of the Better Rivals podcast. And as always, go Niners. Hello, 
I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? And why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find this anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.